The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug, but I ended up connecting to the world around me, a world where each sunset was painted, where I felt adventure's pulse with every step, and where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, there's been a lot of discussion in the media these past few years about what's wrong with boys, what's wrong with men, why aren't they succeeding in school anymore, why are they less likely to go to college than women now. There's all these statistics that are thrown out, and whenever there's this discussion about what's wrong with boys, what's wrong with men, very rarely are there solutions offered. And when solutions are offered, it's often, you know, boys just need to be more like girls and men need to be more like women. Our guest today makes the case that's not necessarily true, that rather we need to understand the unique ways that boys and a man's neurobiology affects how they relate to the world and adapt to our culture to that and embrace that, those uh, unique attributes of men and boys. His name is Michael Gurian. He's the author of 28 books and he's dedicated his life and career to helping teachers, helping parents, helping institutions help boys. That's been a big part of his career. And today we're going to talk about his first book that he wrote. It's called The Wonder of Boys. We'll be discussing how boys and girls are different and how their brain biology affects the way they relate to the world. We're going to discuss the differences between how boys and girls show empathy. There's like this sort of stereotype that boys aren't empathetic. But they are, in fact, empathetic. They just do it differently. We're going to talk about what parents can do to help their young men, help their boys grow into good, strong men. And we're also going to talk about the importance of things like community and extended family and nurturing and growing a a young man. So it's a fascinating discussion. We really scratched the surface of his work, so you'll need to go and check out more on his website. And we'll get that at the end of the website, at the end of the podcast. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Michael Gurian, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you have uh, devoted your career to helping boys and young men. Uh, and your first book that you wrote that addressed some of the problems that you saw in the way that you know, schools or therapists or social workers or you know, even parents approached how they helped or taught boys was a book called The Wonder of Boys. Um, can you describe some of these problems that you saw that kind of made you start looking deeper into this uh, and how we approach helping our young men and boys? Yeah, I, it, it, this is back in the 90s, um, you know, late 80s, early 90s, where I was working with clients. I was completing my, 
my research. I did two years of research in Turkey to compare it to the, you know, to male-female behavior patterns, all of that, sort of the science base of it. And uh, then, of course, I was seeing clients as a therapist. And um, I, I just kept seeing, seeing, you know, more and more boys who were having trouble. So I began to look at it not just from a personal standpoint, but on like what's out there. And there really wasn't much out there. It was a very girls-oriented time. And I have, I have two daughters, so obviously that's fine. I'm not a boy versus girl person. It's all everyone, I believe, needs help. But at that time, there wasn't anything on boys. And I thought, i got to you know, do this. I have to write this down. People don't realize how far behind boys are in school, how far behind girls they are, how much more violence they're experiencing. You know, so across the board, in terms of our social indicators, uh, they're having great difficulty. And what I was able to identify was a whole political landscape that was difficult, which, of course, is hard to cover in a parenting book. Um, I just mentioned it. But what I really wanted to do is I wanted to help, as you say, caregivers, parents, therapists, anyone at the grassroots working with boys to be able to see these issues, to see that we don't we don't train teachers in how the male brain works. So it's very difficult for a lot of our teachers to do as well with boys as girls. Um, because the classroom is set up better for girls, but they don't even realize. Or we don't train therapists on how to provide therapy to boys and men. So, you know, very few boys and men stay in therapy. Um, and so the therapy field is mainly is mainly for women. And obviously that's good, but we really need to get therapy to boys and men. They need it. But we're not training the therapists in how to do it for males, so males walk out. So, um, so the problems are sort of across the board in any area. Um, and I can give you the statistics if you want, but I, I can tell people pretty much across the board now. Yeah. Have you noticed any difference, any changes? Have things gotten worse since then or have things improved in some areas? Um, what yeah. do you see now? Well, what I'm finding is um, that in the areas of the country, you know, usually in neighborhoods or in, in schools or in um, institutions where over the last 20 years they have raise their awareness and they've created sustainable systemic change, uh, that things are improving for, for both boys and girls. Um, but in much of the country, statistically, no, it's getting worse. I mean, we're putting more males in prison, you know, uh, we're having more violence, um, uh, less, less guys going to therapy. You know, in other words, those things we're not solving at a kind of macro level. But at the grassroots, in the last 20 years, there's been enough consciousness raising in certain neighborhoods and and, and institutions, and we spend the Gurian Institute. We spend a lot of time with them. You know, we, we train a lot of teachers in their schools. In those schools, there is improvement. Fantastic. So you kind of alluded to um, one of the problems that uh, schools or institutions face when dealing with boys and girls. They often treat boys the same as girls, or you know, have their approach to boys the same as they do with girls. But you make an argument that there are, you know, bio, there's a difference between boys and girls on a biological level that, you know, and on a cultural level that affects the way they relate to the world emotionally and mentally. Um, can you describe how these differences affect how, you know, boys differently from girls? Yeah. Yeah. These are differences in nature, nurture, and culture. So, um, so, you know, nature is what comes in on the X and the Y chromosomes, what comes in to our genetics, comes into brain development in utero before we're born. That's nature. And the male and the female brain come in very different. So, of course, it's a spectrum of, of seven, over seven billion people now. You've got a brain spectrum, of course. And, and males and females can be anywhere on that, that spectrum, except that 
the 3.5 billion males are on the male side of the spectrum, uh, and the 3.5 billion females are on the female side of the spectrum. And what what we mean by that is that, for instance, um, if if you have a Y chromosome, that triggers markers uh, while the baby's carried in utero, and Y obviously is male, while the baby's carried in utero, and those markers trigger testosterone to flood through the male system, so through the male cells and the male tissue, and that testosterone reformats the brain. Uh, so, for instance, you and I and every, every male listening to this, we, have, um, we don't have the verbal centers on the right side that every female listening to this has, um, and that was all set in utero. That was all set via the X and the Y chromosome and then their linkage to um, the markers and then to the flow of hormones and the reformatting. So all that happens actually between around six months in utero. So when babies are born, they're born boys and girls. And and again, that's a spectrum. There's no stereotype. It's a spectrum. But But the girls, no matter what culture they're from, no matter what continent, doesn't matter, they're going to have verbal centers on both sides of their brains, and they're going to have linkage between those verbal centers and their emotive centers and their sensorial centers on both sides of the brain. Males are going to have the verbal centers on the left, and they're going to have, therefore, linkage only on the left for the emotions and senses. Uh, On the right, males have visual, graphic, and spatial mechanical centers. And um, so, so, for instance, I did my two years of, of my comparative research in Turkey. I could go to a village in eastern Turkey where that was polygamous, where the culture was completely different than New York urban culture, but the play patterns and the behavior patterns of the males and the females were exactly the same because the brains are the same, right? Male brains are male brains, female brains are female brains. Well, no one else had really, I guess, put this together in the way I had for child development before The Wonder of Boys. And I think that's why The Wonder of Boys sort of surprised people. And that's the research that that I find that nature-based research very, very fascinating. However, uh, we include nurture and culture, too, because nature, nurture, and culture are all important for gender. So we take the nature. We're nature-based. I'm a nature-based theorist. I take nature first. Then I look at nurture and culture in, in the neighborhood, in the community. Uh, and what we find is that these brain differences are robust, you know, worldwide, they're robust. Then each family and each community nurtures and enculturates. And if we understand the nature-based differences, the great thing is we're able to intervene in the nurture and in the culture to say, hey, you know, like, look at this school. The nurturing system in this school is really does not understand the, the way these male brains are set up. No one has shown these wonderful teachers brain scans. So our team goes in and shows the brain scans and says, look how, look how different these brains are here. Okay, let's do these things. So, for instance, with males, um, they'll need to physically move around more uh, in order to concentrate. And, and that, that will not be true of every male, but it'll be true in a classroom of 25. It'll be true of around four to five males. So, okay, the teacher knows to do that now and you know, has strategies now for doing that so that that male can physically move around to stimulate parts of his brain that don't get stimulated if he sits still. But in a female brain, those parts of the brain do get stimulated. So that's one of the reasons boys are getting, you know, 70% of the Ds and Fs in the U.S. right now um, is that these wonderful teachers don't don't know this. But once they know it, then it really changes the kids' lives. Hmm. What What are your thoughts about, uh, you know, there's been a lot of reports lately about the growing use of you know, Ritalin and stimulants like that to keep boys. I mean, is is that being overprescribed for ADD? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, we have two things going on. One thing is, 
and these are in a sense two separate topics. Sure. Um, one thing is that the the you know most of the Ritalin is being used in the U.S. and we want to remember that most of these diagnoses are in the U.S. So you know the way in which these two things relate is in that, but they're from different um, etiologies, different sources. The misdiagnosis, the source of that is what I just described in in the schools and then in the parents. They you know they feel a lot of pressure. They want their son to succeed. He's having trouble. They don't understand that some of the trouble comes from the the lack of training of the teachers. Um, so they try to get him on on drugs, and then the school is saying, "Look, you know, the kid can't focus; he can't sit still." See, whenever I hear that one, you know, then I know it's probably going to be misdiagnosed because it's you know pretty normal for these five boys to not sit still. But but <laughs> that's the misdiagnosis. So it comes from just a lack of information and a lack of training. But on the other hand, we are also creating more brain disordered kids in this generation. Um, and that's an issue of genetics and environmental toxins. And, and that's like a whole other program. That's yes. about genetics and epigenetics. And you, you maybe have had other geneticists on to talk about that, um, both in the dad's sperm and in the mom, you know, carrying the baby ovaries. We believe there are some things happening genetically because of plastics and estrogen receptors and these things that we're trying to figure out now. So we have an increase in brain disorders for both boys and girls. Um, but we also have a misdiagnosis for boys on the ADD. Um, so you mentioned uh, culture being an important part of what a boy needs or what an important part of what makes up a boy's emotional and mental life. And, and in your book, The Wonder of Boys, you describe a few components of male culture that, I mean, I got the gist that it was sort of ubiquitous around the globe, um, sort of like high level principles of what makes up a male culture. Yeah, and and yes, absolutely. What I'm what I'm always trying to put in my books are are things that I can I can prove worldwide, you know, um, uh, so that I can so that we can kind of all process ourselves beyond the nature versus nurture. So, um, so some of the cultural elements that I would I'm looking at, like for instance, wherever I study boys, I, I can see that they are creating a culture that is that involves more aggression nurturance, for instance. Um, uh, than girls are. So I need to describe what that is. Aggression nurturance is different than empathy nurturance. Empathy nurturance tends to be more more verbally motives. So it's more how do you feel? And it, it asks for and receives back information about feelings and it uses words to transmit that information. Um, and it, it memories and stories, you know, to transmit that information. And it tends to be more softer. So it's soft touch oriented. Uh, you know, I come to you and I touch you and I say, how do you feel? How can I help you? That's empathy nurturance. Uh, we all practice it, males and females. Females tend to practice it more and for longer periods of time because they use more words um, uh, for their emotions. Males tend to form cultures um, uh, that use more aggression nurturance. And aggression nurturance is uh, if someone falls down, it's get up, get up. We need you. You're okay. Come on, get up. Uh, and because there's an aggression game being played, there's competition being uh, played, you know, and the self-esteem is not based as much in, in, in feeling immediate empathy and extending that empathy. The self-esteem, the transmission of self-esteem comes through this competitive game or something that involves aggression uh, and it involves pushing each other and bopping each other on the head, you know, and wrestling and all of these things where males are transmitting love. 
Now, both males and females can wrestle. Both males and females can talk about their feelings. So everyone is using both empathy and aggression nurturance. But in any culture that we study, boys and girls, we see males creating their culture around more aggression nurturance. And so that's an example of, of boy culture that we have to more deeply understand than we do. We, we can't just say, okay, you hitting your friend on the head is, is wrong. Go to the principal, right? We have, to, we have to look at aggression nurturance and say, wow, that was actually a very nurturing gesture. But it scared this person over here who doesn't understand it. Whereas these two boys are nurturing each other and they're, and they're uh, helping each other. And one of the big messages for me in all this, and this is for both boys and girls, is we intervene way, way too much and way too quickly in the lives of these kids. These kids are trying to be themselves, and they're trying to challenge each other. Uh, and, and unless there's danger, unless they're really dangerous to each other, which a swat on the head is not danger, unless there's danger, we need to step back and study th- their culture better. And so that's what that chapter on boy culture is about, to help, to help people study boy culture so that we don't keep overreacting to it and robbing it of its assets. Hmm. Well, how do you, that, that kind of brings up a question. How do you, you know, bullying is a big problem. These days. It's in the news a lot. How do you make that distinction between sort of that aggression nurturance where boys are sort of just razzing each other good naturedly, but, but how do you make that distinction between that and bullying? Cause I think some parents would, would just say any type of aggression nurturance is bullying and they would just like. Right. Well, that, that, again, that's just because we spent so little time studying boys. Um, if we study boys, what we see is that there is a difference between aggression and violence. And I think, you know, I know all of us want to stop violence. Um, so what I, so part of my work has been to create a distinction. In other words, to everywhere I go, every lecture I give, you know, every keynote I give, I always make this distinction and say, all right, Let's distinguish now between what's aggression and what's violence. So we stop overreacting to aggression. So aggression is one organism or, or nation state, obviously. It could be a country. Uh, one organism that tries to uh, manipulate, control, challenge, uh, um, or exploit another organism. So everyone's aggressive, including girls, right? Boys and girls, you know, we're all aggressive maybe in different ways, but everyone will have an aggressive moment in life in which we will be trying to control someone else, manipulate, et cetera. Parents are very aggressive with kids. Kids are aggressive with parents, et cetera. That's aggression. That's not violence. So the kid pushing the other kid and then them laughing, uh, that's challenge. That's nurturance. That's, yeah, I'm, you know, I manipulated you by pushing you, uh, but there's no danger. Okay. Now, violence is when one organism or system attempts to destroy attempts to destroy the other organism. And we include in that destruction of core self, uh, because we got to include psychological, psychological abuse or emotional violence. So if, if I push another kid into a locker and then we both laugh about it, and then the other one grabs the other one and puts him in a, you know, a stranglehold and we're all laughing about it, we need to realize that this is a transmission of love. So that's obviously not bullying. Bullying would have to be violent, and that would mean that I, let's use me, am trying to destroy the core self of this other person. So, for instance, if if I um, am a, a bigot and I, you know, call someone else uh, a nigger or call someone else a fag, and I keep doing that, it's very clear I'm a bigot and I want to destroy the core self of this other person. 
that is bullying and that is violent and that's psychologically abusive and, and hurtful. But so many of these other things are not. And so the FBI has tried to come out and say, okay, how much bullying is actually going on? And the last statistic I saw was 13%. So we would say 13% is, is too high. We would rather that was zero. Uh, but at the same time, that does also mean that most of these interactions are not bullying. And so I'm begging us to study it all more carefully so that we figure out what really is destruction of core self. And that's what we focus on. Okay. Um, so in one part of the book, you talk about the stages of a boy's emotional and mental development. I know we can kind of detail, but kind of a rough sketch. I mean, from, from infancy to, you know, early twenties, what, what sort of stages do boys go through and what can parents role models do to help them journey, navigate safely through these different stages? Uh, well, I'll, let me pull out a few because, as you said, I mean, it's just so much there. Sure. Um, but let me pull out a few because it's, it's in a way, you know, one of the most important questions we can ask since our kids are developmental. So, so what works for them when they're, you know, two won't work later. So let's just pull out, I'll pull out a few. Let's pull out birth to two. I mean, so there's, there's a time when it's really, it's really, once we have food, shelter, and clothing, let's just assume we have that, it's really about attachment. And, and so it's going to be all about bonding and attachment. And in that stage, some things for folks to look at. So if anyone listening has a, a baby birth to two, you know, look at things like screen time. Like how much of the child's time is he spending in front of a screen um, and not, therefore not, you know, maybe not bonding or, um, uh, you know, that, that's sort of if they're spending a lot of time like in Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. As daycare or childcare facility and they're actually watching a couple movies, then that's not good for him because it's, it's really all about bonding. And then it's also about a physical kinesthetic exploration of the world so that his his brain tissue and his synapses so they close and they build in the way they need to. So those are like some key things to look at there. If he's staring at a screen, he's not touching things. He's not grabbing things. He's not uh, out in the world. And so we could be negatively affecting his brain development. And obviously, if he's not attached, we could be negatively affecting his brain development. So, for instance, if both parents are working, which many are, and, and that can be absolutely fine, um, make sure that that boy has at least one other caregiver during the day that he's being held by and bonding with, uh, especially birth to two. Because one of the things that gets, gets missed with boys is people think of them as tough, et cetera, and they don't realize that birth to two, there are some ways in which the bonding mechanisms for males are really more fragile than we realize, uh, that they need a lot more bonding than maybe the stereotype would tell us. So so that, that would be very important. Uh, pick another one. Let's say in the four to six age group, so now, obviously, in that developmental stage, they've, they've, they've developed, et cetera. Um, so a key thing that happens there is parents may notice that the boy is not developing certain things as quickly as maybe his sister did. 
and that could still be very normal. Boys, boys reading, writing, anything that has to do with their verbals, which is word production. Um, uh, for a lot of boys, they're a year to a year and a half behind girls in that. So um, when you use an aggregate of thousands and thousands of boys and girls, you see that more girls are speaking in fuller sentences more quickly than more boys. Uh, so a lot of people hold their, their boys back uh, in kindergarten, and that's fine. that can be fine. So in other words, just be aware that there are these developmental differences. Jumping ahead to early, early like 10 to 12, that's another big stage. A couple, number of things go on. One is brain pruning. So just know that between 10 and 12, what your son is doing now, between 10 and 12, that will probably stay. It's a use it or lose it thing that goes on in the brain. So that, so if he's playing three hours of video games, which I hope he's not, uh, just remember that could damage him for life in the sense that those are the synapses. That's the brain tissue. That's the stuff that'll stay, the gray matter that'll stay because the brain will prune out what's not being used. So we would really rather between 10 and 12 that he's doing things that you know are going to be important for his meaning in life, his purpose, his, his talent set, uh, and his social emotional bonding. Do more, do as much of that as we can since that's what's going to stay. And, and, you know, stuff that isn't really as good for him in the long term, maybe, you know, maybe don't do those. Uh, another thing that goes on, and I'll do one more, jump to like 13, 14, is this, the psychological separation. So there's a lot of individuation that goes on now and, and, um, can happen earlier, can happen later. It's just sort of the general time for it. And moms may notice that the boys are pulling away. Well, a danger zone can be if the boys psychologically pull away from mom, which they, which many of them have to, they've got to figure out what a man is. They, you know, it's really normal for any child to individuate. But if there isn't dad around or if there aren't two or three other males around um, who can mentor these boys, we have this a big problem right now with, with these early adolescent boys who don't have male mentors, don't have fathers, don't have male role models, but they do have to individuate from mom. So they're basically isolated and alone developmentally. And, and you know, that leads to obviously can lead to prison, gangs. Uh, lack of motivation in school, et cetera. I mean, all sorts of bad things. So we, we want to focus, uh, if someone's listening in that has kids at that age group, look around and make sure there's dad and or two or three other uh, males around who, you know, this boy can walk in the footsteps of those males as he psychologically individuates from mom. Okay. Those well, are a few. Yeah, that was, that was great. Um, and that last bit about having um, not just dad, but also male mentors around leads me to my, to my next question. Um, one part of your book that I just really loved is when you talk about the importance of the three families uh, in a boy's life. Because I think that's something that doesn't get really focused on very much when we talk about nurturing our children. Um, can you talk about what those three families are and what role they should play in a, in a boy's life? I, I, I believe, I mean, I base this in, you know, in, in my research base, which is science, which is so I'm, I'm using neuroanthropology, neuroscience, neuropsychology. As I look at, uh, at the, at this data, um, around the world, I, I, the patterns I see are patterns in which the healthiest kids, both male and female, are kids raised in some form of, of a three family system rather than in one nuclear family, but a three-family system. So what it means is you've got the nuclear unit. Of course, that's the initial attachment unit. So that unit could be it could be hetero. It could be mom and dad. It could be intact hetero, right? Mom and dad, um, intact family. 
it also could be adoptive family. It also could be two men or two women. So a gay or lesbian family. It also, you know, there's a lot of divorce. It could be a divorced family and it becomes a blended family, or it could be a single parent after a divorce or a non-marriage. So that's the nuclear unit. And um, the way nature seems to have set up human development is with the understanding that there's fragility in the nuclear unit. Because as we not only look at the U.S. and other cultures, but look back at history, we notice that every nuclear unit had right around it extended family systems, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, cousins, that whole extended family unit. That's the second family. Now, in the U.S., we're, we're mobile, and it's a huge country. So very often, the grandparents don't live next to the kids. So that's fair enough. But the human being is wired for that second family. So I'm, what I'm always advising parents are don't just rely on nuclear family. Uh, look at your own family. Keep that as strong and safe as you can. And keep having these, the second family around you um, so that nanny could be second family. The daycare providers, we want them to be second family. In other words, we want one or two of them really bonded with our kid like second family. Um, it, obviously, if our blood relatives are around, then we want to use them and exploit them. Yes. Uh, if they're not around, we want to look at co-op. We want to look at any kind of structure or system, and later it could be Boy Scouts, later it could be Big Brothers, Big Sisters, whatever, all systems in which there are these other people who become intimate with in their bond with our child, like a grandma or grandpa. That's that's always the sort of standard. Uh, so you've got first family, however it's formed, but it's fragile, and so we therefore need second family. And then what wraps around the second family has always been a tribal community. And this also we can see anthropologically throughout history. So human beings, we've got to remember, human beings are nature-based. All this culture stuff is really, really recent, right? Human beings are nature-based. Our cells are wired. Our chromosomes are wired uh, for a certain kind of nurture. So we want to remember the tribal nurture. That's the third family. So now for us, many of us are not in tribes per se, but our religious group, if we're at all religious, that can be a third family. Our school, uh, we want to be going to schools or interacting with schools in such a way that they are like third family at least. And some, when they're very small schools, they can become like second family. But the larger schools, you know, let's at least make sure they're like third family so that uh, so those institutions wrap around and support um, what's being done in the second and the first family. And so that there's constant interaction between these two, not, uh, not isolation between the nuclear family and the school. If people think this way, then people are thinking first, second, and third family. And then that's, that ends the kind of negative trend that I think we have where, where people will say, well, you know, if you could just give me three tips to have a healthy child, <laughs> uh, or what's, what are the, what's the one thing I should say to my son to get him to be healthy? Yeah. That's not the. That's not how human beings are wired to parent, uh, and that's not how kids are wired to receive love and to grow. Uh, the one thing I can always tell people: if you want to have a healthy kid, I can't. I can't tell you what his, his or her genetics are. So that that's its own thing. But if you want to have a healthy kid, your best chance of that is a strong first, second, and third family relationship. Do you, Do you think like the disintegration of the second family and third family? in American life. Cause I feel like we're not really community based anymore, right? Like you said, um, people will get up and move away from their extended family and then they belong to sort of these anonymous, you know, large schools or large corporations or large networks. Um, do you think that's been a 
contributed to, you know, some of the, these like really troubling, um, instances we've seen with young men with gun, like these mass shooters. Right. And they all seem oh, yeah. to describe the same thing. Like they feel alone or like no one saw them or recognized them or respected them. Um, does that disintegration of those three families play a part in that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, over the years, over the last 16, 17 years, I've been asked to look, you know, either by other professionals or by the media at the profiles of school shooters and, you know, to try to do some consulting and some assistance. And so what I've been able to see in this is that the the social isolation um, cascading into depression or chicken and egg depression, then social isolation, um, uh, nuclear family, family generally is somewhat disintegrated. Uh, but if not nuclear, you know, isolation from extended family, isolation from these other three or four people who, who we need to be bonded to this kid. And then in the third family, as you've described, that's where the bullying can often take place. Um, uh, and that creates even more isolation, obviously, and pain. And, and so one of the things I've, I've tried to say is really what you're saying, which is that we should go back and look at the disintegration of the three families around these kids. And as a nation, that's really what we ought to be targeting. We need to really re-educate, um, basically, I think, re-educate the American populace to understand that it takes three families. And so every parent needs, you know, some advice, you know, advice or training or, or just a cultural conversation so that they look at these things so that these guys don't have to become so isolated because if I would, some of these guys, you know, are genetically sociopathic. That's different. That that's not created, mm -hmm. right? That that's pre-birth. But most of them have been abused in some terrible way, which would not have happened if they weren't if they weren't so isolated, and or they're very isolated, so multivariable. So when you put all that together, you have to bracket out genetics. But at least you can you can look at your nuclear, look at your extended, and look at your tribal or your communal, and say, okay. Basic developmental assistance for these guys does not exist. They're socially isolated and they're chronically depressed. And and for males, that is more likely going to turn to violence than for females. Okay. Um, how, I know a lot of our listeners are, are dads. Um, how should fathers approach and think about their role as a father in order to maximize their son's personal growth and emotional and mental uh, health? Uh I'm gonna, I want to say two things at once to fathers. Sure. And one is just be yourself, you know, and because there's a lot out there about, you know, here's the way you should father. <laughs> well, my message is you be yourself, be yourself. Um, as you're being yourself, do these things. Transmit your values to your son because ultimately his journey is a journey of character development. He, he wants to live a life of purpose and he wants to figure out what a man is. And every one of us, even us in these generations, you know, uh, in our feminist and post-feminist generations, um, the culture can do what the culture wants. But these boys want to know what a man is. And if they don't know what a man is, they're going to be 20, 25, 30, 35, and they're still not going to know. And that is a very difficult way to be an adult male. So transmit these values, transmit your life stories. Um, uh, into, you know, pour yourself into this boy in the way that is you, not in the way that's Gurian, but in the way that's you. And so for some of these guys, it will not involve a lot of words. You know, for some, some fathers, they're being told they should talk all the time, but that's not how they're set up. So for them, they need to do everything. They always be doing things. 
um, okay, told you to mow the lawn while you're mowing the lawn. I'm going to be weeding. I'm going to be right here. My presence is going to be right here near you, let's say. And not every day, but you know, once a week. Or I need to fix the car and you want to play a video game. No, I think you should come out and fix the car with me. Because, because what the boy needs is father presence, right? He needs father presence in the way that father is father. And if it's in fixing a car, then that's where the pouring of that man, of that guy's manhood, of his fatherhood, of his being and self, that's going to pour in through the fixing of the car. And there may be very few words spoken. Now, for other guys, me, I'm very talkative. I'm a talker, so I'm constantly wanting to talk. Well, that's fine, too. However it is that the transmission of this goes on, let it go on. Okay, then the second major thing I'll say to fathers is that we live in a time that is very confused about fathering. So if, if, uh, and we know, however, that the lack of the father is one of the primary determinants of male distress, right? So that father is really, really important. Now, there certainly are some fathers, maybe 5% of fathers, who are just dangerous, bad people. So I'm, I'm going to bracket them out for this answer. But most fathers are, are good enough. And, um, so to the father and to and to moms, you know, if mom and dad are fighting, that should have nothing to do with the father's relationship with his son. And if mom and dad divorce, uh, it's crucial that mom backs away from shaming the father because the boy will need the father. And of course, once the boy hits puberty, he's going to need the father even more. And one of the saddest trends that I think is causing a lot of social problems today is that post-divorce, Fathers are being forced into becoming friends with their sons. They're not transmitting. They're not pouring themselves in. They're just basically begging for contact with these sons. And when the son comes over, they just, you know, they'll do anything. Oh, let's go to pizza. Um, let's play video games. You know, they'll do anything just to be friends with these sons so the sons don't turn away. So we're going to have to fix that as a culture because what the son, what we need to do is, even if there's a divorce or a separation, we need to support. Uh, the father's role with that son. And that's going to mean women are going to have to alter some of the messages they send, um, even though they're very angry at their spouse. And it's going to mean fathers are going to have to fight harder to keep their father-son relationship and uh, not let it go to, you know, a friend and I'll just entitle you and buy you anything. And that'll, that should be it. Okay. Um, for our listeners who aren't dads, I mean, what can they do to be a male mentor? Cause I, I get that question a lot is how they, how you, you can become a male mentor. Cause it's sort of awkward. Like you don't want to foist yourself upon, you know, some young man, right. like I am, yo, I'm, I know everything and listen to me. I mean, what, what, what any practical tips? If there's a guy who's just like, I, I want to help, but I don't know how to do that. Uh, yes. Um, depending on age group, let's say the first of all, let me cover the elder age group. If it's if it's folks who are you know sort of retirement and older, um, we want to get every single retired male who, who has time now. That's the reason I say retired or older. Uh, we want to get every single male who's retired connected with a younger male. So I would beg, I'll say in this age group, I would beg you if you're listening to go to your faith community to go to Big Brothers Big Sisters or to go to scouting or to go call your local Department of Social and Health Services, ask them if they have a program, call your school district and ask if you can come in and read to the the kids, you know, boys and girls, obviously, and see if a bond emerges. Um, uh, Call any relatives in your family, even if they live far away, you could still use email and Skype. 
get connected to at least one boy that you mentor um, through his developmental process. And that that's easier because you have more time. Okay, now going to folks who are working. For, for men who are working but don't have kids, if you have family members, call the family members so that, you know, if they've got a son, so that you can get more involved in that son's life. Some of that should happen organically because you're the favorite uncle, let's say, for one of your nephews. But if it hasn't happened that way, then, then put in the call. Say, listen, I've learned about this. I want to be part of this. I want to be part of the second family. Um, and, and then go to uh, any institution. And right now, I would say the easiest institution is the faith community. Because a lot of faith communities, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, uh, a lot of faith communities are are awakening to this, and they can be the liaison. Um, they they have, for instance, rites of passage program or confirmation programs or these things that they're trying to institute, um, or they're noticing that males are not going to church, they're not going to synagogue, you know, after about 12, 13. So they really want to reinvigorate males and masculinity. So, so call them, call the pastor, call the youth pastor, get involved in doing a trip with them. So, so that would be if you have a faith community. If you have no faith community, you're not involved in that, uh, then the school is a good institution. Get a hold of the school counselors, you know, and say, here's who I am. Now, some of the schools will say, well, we got to vet you. Okay, fair enough. Be available for that and be ready for questions, you know, like embarrassing questions about, because they don't want, they want to make sure you're not a sexual abuser. But if you can put yourself through that, go through that in these institutions and then say, look, I value the mentorial relationship and I want to be a mentor. Um, and and if, the, if the school isn't allowing you to do that, then, wow, there's some advocacy you can do in that school and say, well, why not? You know, why won't you let me? What's going on here? Uh, and same with faith community. So really press and really push hard into all of these institutions Show them you understand what mentoring is and make yourself available. And it, it may be a battle. It may be a battle. If they haven't awakened to the need, it, you know, it may be a battle. Okay. Well, Michael Gurian, we, we just scratched the surface today. Um, so uh, where can our listeners go to find more about your work? Uh, well, easiest way is just go to michaelgurian.com, michaelgurian.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-G-U-R-I-A-N. Dot com and it links to every one of our different programs and, and services and products. Fantastic. Well, Michael Gurian, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Anytime. Have me back. It's, you, you're, you're doing great work. Thank you. Thank you. Our guest today was Michael Gurian. He is the author of the book, The Wonder of Boys. You can find that on Amazon.com. And also make sure to check out MichaelGurian.com for more information about his work with young men and boys. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And again, if you enjoy this podcast and you've got something out of it, I'd really appreciate it if you go to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever it is, use to listen to your podcast and give us a review. Much appreciated. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.